Beth and Fresno. Late night Fridays, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Voice is catching up. Voice is catching up. Watch out, child. Watch out, child. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, KLCF in Fresno. Stay tuned for Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and yes, indeed, let us drop the shadows out of sight today. It's too dark for me. I'm afraid I, I'm i losing, what is it, my tragic sense. I've reached the point where uh, absurdities are my only comfort. I made a list of them last night, and then I <laughs> decided... Not to bore you with them, let's see, this morning, my favorite absurdity, uh, for your consideration, think about this, um, I have read somewhere, and I've got to find out where, so that I can uh, say so and tell you, because you'll want proof, uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton, Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton, is the owner of, I believe, if not the largest, nearly the largest collection of Barbie dolls in the United States or on the globe. Uh, now, <laughs> what that proves or what that indicates, I leave to you. But I am perplexed, and I'm going to write her a letter and ask her what that's all about. I'm trying to be a realist in my old age. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> retired, retired romantics flatter themselves. They are realists. I think they're just, they're just those who've given up. Uh, last week, I read pieces of uh, a book of my own called Telegraph Avenue then, and I received in the mail some kind letters and, uh, I'm amazed that any number of KPFA listeners uh, can handle this stuff. As a matter of fact, a couple of them asked me for more of the same. So I thought that rather than try to, to dig deep and figure out uh, the meaning behind what is that, uh, our economic collapse... <laughs> <laughs> and everything else that's going on around us, yes, the fall of empire, the end of history, all that stuff. I thought I'd just brush all that aside and uh, look in my little pile of memoirs and, uh, 
Yes, uh, Remembrance of Things Past. Here it is, September 1972. My God, that was a long time ago. Um, 72, 8, ta, 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 30 years ago? Yes, 30 years ago. Um, I, I hesitate to, to, uh, mention my age at the time, let's just say 40-something, uh, I will, uh, I will read you the lighter bits. Nothing tragic today. Life is tragic enough. I think we should keep our stories, uh, lighthearted, at least, <laughs> at least for this season. Uh, let's see, September 1972, in this memoir, Ah, uh, there is an excerpt from a Hebrew legend. It's the little uh, epigram at the top of the uh, entry. It says here, this Hebrew legend says that Lilith, you remember Lilith, Adam's first wife, okay. Lilith chose to leave Adam and live alone by the Red Sea. She found peace there. On the hard rock sand lining the deep blue gulf of Aqaba, making love with satyrs, minotaurs, and centaurs. There you go. <laughs> ah, yes, I can't help it, folks. My mind keeps running back to Hillary Rodham Clinton. I think that Hillary is a kind of sex goddess, but I'll ruminate on that another time. Anyway, this section of the memoir says that I'm reading about Lilith, that's Adam's first woman. There are so many interpretations of Lilith that I just feel free to see it my way. Uh, some accounts say that Lilith was Adam's uh, mistress, or first wife, or... Um, companion, she was created equal with him, both of them made by God, by Yahweh, out of the dust of the earth, or of some red clay or something. It seems that they had irreconcilable differences. She split with her demon children. She had an infinite number of demon children, couldn't count them. Custody is destiny. Whatever. She left him to Eve. Eve could melt into him, be part of him. Eve was made of his flesh, or of blonde apples, or some damn thing. So, Lilith is the dark, the dark earth woman who lives alone at the edge of town. Kind of like the village witch. Oh, I remember now. She is the village witch. So I guess it was not Adam that I loved all those autumns. I was waiting for her, for Lilith, to come home in the night and watch the storm with me. Together, she and I would wait for the winter foam. The winter foam blew through the sea caves. We stayed there, keeping warm. 
Those men I loved, I loved alone. That was in the spring, I think, when I needed the children. I remember how it was then. I remember how I raved, wrung my hands, how I tried to explain myself. He, of course, said I was mad. <laughs> so I was <laughs> passed for mad, and so I, I loved as I was told to love. He said how it should be. And so it was, for him. Then came autumn. Then understanding it was not man. Not man who gave me life. I looked then beyond the houses and the money and the sex life. The sex life. Lilith's children were born to me there in the darkness, in the caves. I knew my mother and kept silent. The next entry is on All Hallows' Eve. You know, Halloween, 1972. The closer I get to forty, the more I study the Dark Ones. I study Lilith, the demon mother goddess, the Dark Lady, now a literary cliché, the scapegoat, usually, the Death Witch. Lilith is the Dark Knight, the Dark Knight of woman places, the womb, tomb, out of which we came into the light, we women. Simon, my youngest son Simon, listens to my thoughts and sits singing. A womb with a view and you. <laughs> he should care. He's found an Eve. He sits on the grass with a grilled cheese blonde, she is all sunlight and smiles. There she is, his immortality. For her, for Eve, he piles up stones and pyramids, cairns, also volumes of what he calls thought and poetry and blood and gold, and uh, gods by the dozen. All this he does so that she will create him anew. <laughs> Lilith, like Adam, is out on a limb. They're single. They're made of the same stuff, those two. Like Adam, Lilith is all alone. Unnatural for a woman, the men say, thus, she's the strange one, the sorceress, the shrew, the bitch, the seductress, the pariah. <laughs> so masculine. I bump into Lilith from time to time. Last time I saw her, 
she came to a coffee house poetry reading. <laughs> she <laughs> she dabbed uh, something pornographic behind her ears. She tied herself to a crucifix with ropes of knotted sanitary napkins and called it a feminist protest. Her eyes were dark, dark and heavy, like those of Sappho. Her heavy lids closed and she smiled as each poet threw a stone, threw a rose, threw a stone until she fell. I'm reading to you bits and scraps and fragments from a memoir called Telegraph Avenue then written in the 1970s and uh, I'm digging into it in hopes that remembrance of things past will soften the blows of what is hitting us today now yes we are our stories and they do comfort us uh, the next section is taken from winter 1972 Deep Winter, it begins with an epigram from Sappho. Oh, dream with black wings, mayest thou come when sleep brings forgetfulness. Good old Sappho, what would we do without her? <laughs> anyway, it's an old dream. Sea lace caught around his throat. The blackish fronds resemble cords across his chest. He drowns silently in underwater slow motion, sinking down below the reef at the cove where I swam back in, oh, let's see, the old days, I call this one my little mermaid dream. I saw a boy drown once when I was ten. Well, actually, I only saw his body on the sand. He was dead by then. He had drowned, and they brought him to shore. I still see him in a dream. He comes to me. In stillness and uh, in the water, he holds my legs, pulling me down, both of us drowning, and I reach out for his hand. I reach out the way I almost did once before, and I hold him as I have always wanted to hold him, in reconciliation, without desire, and we are swimming in twilight on the crest of the wave, and then we are sitting quietly on the sand, sitting in the dark, watching the lights go on up the hill there in the town. When he sees the lights, the dream cracks and becomes verbal. 
He talks to me. He has an appointment in San Francisco. We say the usual things in our old ritual. He decides not to use my phone. There's no point in asking him why. He cuts me dead. Then the right of remembering ruins my dream and I wake up. Better to remember the good stuff. I remember once he touched a bracelet, a tiny silver bracelet on my dresser. He picked it up and looked at it, uh, felt it as if it were a lock of hair. Once he stepped on a kitten in the darkness of the hall outside my bedroom. He was angry then. Really, really angry with me for not remembering to put the kitten back in the box. And then there were those times when he said he loved me with as much conviction as doubt. Wish I could remember the end of that dream. Who was it said existentialists never finish their books? <laughs> Being is too much with us. We can't finish until we know the end. Death. Death will be the end of knowing. He's been gone a year now. He was not an existentialist. He was not even a swimmer. Last time I saw him, I stood on my front porch. I shut the door behind me so the children wouldn't hear. I cried into his shoulder while he tried to sort of pat me. I remember I was quite upset and making such a scene that he was caught off guard. He handled me as if I were a slightly sandy, wet puppy. He didn't want jumping in his lap. This next section is more than a year later. Uh, December of 1973 begins with an epigram from... Uh, the film Hiroshima Mon Amour. I had a copy of the text by Marguerite Duras, the great Marguerite Duras. Uh, let's see. Grove Press, 1961. In the film, we see the two main characters. Uh, <laughs> he says, you... You saw nothing in Hiroshima. You saw nothing. She answers, nothing. Just as in love this illusion exists. This illusion of being able never to forget, so I was under the illusion that I would never forget Hiroshima. Just as in love. That's the end of the um, epigram 
from Hiroshima Mon Amour. Uh, I am seated alone in a chair by the sea. The colors here are slate or navy gray. The sea is full of floating debris, broken planes, the shells of ships. Dunkirk, desolation, wreckage, all drifting quietly now, rising and falling with the swell of the waves. Like kelp on storm mornings. This continues, stretches to the horizon. It is almost dawn, but the darkness remains. And now he comes to get me there. I am wearing only my navy trench coat over my skin as I used to do when we played at clandestine liaison love before the war. As I begin to unbutton my coat, the top button crumbles, breaks off in my hand. When I try to pick it up, there is nothing on the sand but seaweed and some little dead crabs on my bare feet. The road is sand here. There is another road of rock, then one of dirt, then asphalt. Then the highway leads from the beach up the cliffs. I take the road at the more acute angle away from the tire tracks, a broken miniature stag is along the path to the Tokyo Honeymoon Hotel. The little stag is dying. He looks at me. I see him. It is a child's feeling when the china doll breaks and even the pieces, the precious pieces, are kept in a box. The little stag is made of a magic porcelain. It seems engraved with an antique Asiatic pattern which seems to be a language. The uh, psychosis that follows that section <laughs> is several pages long. Let us jump. Let us jump forward another year and a half. <laughs> ah, I go for a drive with a new male. His name is Oscar. He's been passed on to me through an old friend, so I can't be rude. I'm not anxious to begin a new liaison. I have enough to do as it is. My primal attachment is grim but steady. Secondary attachments have fallen into place. A New Yorker. Ah, one who flies into town with paternal presence. Then a youthful beauty who imagines he's the picture of Dorian Gray. He always comes back to me after his ritual debauches, saying he simply has no respect 
for any other woman. Each one of them is a poem. Oscar appears to be a zero, but I decide to look him over. We visit the dead in the hills of Oakland. My mother's best friend's last lover is buried here near a willow tree. His tombstone is engraved, Fall leaves and graceful be. Farewell, then, I follow thee. I show this grave to Oscar. I tell him all about my mother's best friend and how she met her last lover on the pier at Aptos by the sea. Oscar is not listening. He murmurs that our mutual friend has told him a lot about me and what she has told him makes him feel we should get to know each other, he said. He hopes we will fill each other's deepest needs and he just loves this graveyard. Yes, Yes, I tell Oscar, the graveyard is very beautiful. I'm grateful to him for bringing me here to see it. Oscar tells me all about his therapy program. Before therapy, he was afraid of his own shadow. I praise therapy. After therapy, he doesn't even cast a shadow. <laughs> Oscar is so proud of what he calls the Appian Way. It's a road of very exclusive tombs done in mock Roman or pagan styles with pretentious statues and columns, mausoleums standing with chained, rusted gates where the dead are locked in. At the end of this road is a toy pyramid as big as a house. It is a woman's last resting place. I wonder, did she buy this for herself? No, no. It is dedicated to a beloved wife with eternal devotion. Her husband has laid her to rest. <laughs> it's a bit of a mummy's tomb. No way of knowing if she asked for it. What would make a man do a thing like that, I ask Oscar. And he tells me that if a man truly loves a woman, there is nothing... He will not do for her. <laughs> we walk to the older overgrown section of the graveyard. It is in deep shade. I feel as if I'm walking through a southern gothic novel. Stone lambs mark the graves of children. Gertrude Kiekenveldt, aged 11, died 1881. Sarah, wife of Thomas, lies among five of her children, all gone, gone to feed the roses. The stone slabs are engraved, lambs of our Lord. Some of the graves are still visited. Shreds of wreaths and weathered urns rest on the stones. Libations and sacrifice here, everywhere, pagan and Christian. Always there are stones, the souls are in the stones. Engravings on the older tombs. Sarah's children, ah, the little tombs, are formal. <laughs> 
William James, the second William Paul, our Jonathan, little Polly, finally. Finally, just Eddie, aged 11 months. Sarah, wife of, did you make these redundant decaying fences round the graves? Did you watch beside a bedroom fireplace in a room with high ceilings, with candles lit for prayers? Were you ashamed to sleep? All those children gone to gardens in the night. The leaves are deep and time is silent here. I could be quiet and rest in this great stillness if only Oscar would stop talking data. The ratio of abortions to live births in the United States and so forth. <laughs> the rest of this section is devoted to a discussion of abortion past and present. We'll save that for another day. This has been Jennifer Stone. Be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. If you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light up. picture drop the shadow out of soul. when you think of the hard knock you think of that station of resistance one of the most phenomenal beats of all time good information and great radio news views and hip-hop what do it the way you feel it hard knock hard knock hard knock radio monday through friday and it's from 4 to 5 p.m knocking hard in your area 94.1 kpfa only revolution is our evolution <sighs> so good this is free speech radio 94.1